Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's podcast. And I'm very honored to have special guest who has an expertise in risk and legal issues. And uh, I really find her a very inspiring leader. I've been lucky enough to work with her. And uh, I, I know that she touches the lives of so many people and she is an inspiration to so many. Um, before I ask her to introduce herself, this is also, as we're recording this, she and I were talking about two defining moments in, in our lives that we want to acknowledge, um, which will have touched the lives of so many of you who are listening. The first one is the anniversary of 9-11, 11 years ago, uh, in which almost 3,000 people lost their lives, but many others' lives were affected by that throughout the whole world and all that followed on from that. A hugely defining moment in our lives. I can remember where I was, and I wonder if you can remember where you were at that time when you heard that shocking news and saw the imagery. And then the second one was on the 8th of September when Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II died after a phenomenal reign, the longest monarch, um, our longest reigning commander in chief of the British military as an army officer uh, at the age of 96. And she died on the same day that my mother died. So it, it was very poignant for me in many ways and a defining moment for all of us, uh, whether you're a royalist or you're not. But I think you can acknowledge uh, her talents as an inspiring leader. And when we're doing this podcast, which is about inspiring leaders, I think we should acknowledge her. Without further ado, I'll ask my guest to introduce herself. Hello. Uh, thanks for having me here today. I'm delighted to be with you. And um, as you noted, I'm Simon Somalia. I'm the Executive Vice President for Legal and Risk at Remotely Global. So I'm a great having you on here. And, and as we were talking about um, role modeling and making a difference and your, your young daughter, uh, Fatima, and, and how she looks to you at her age of seven and three quarters. The three quarters mm -hmm. is very important. <laughs> um, uh, what a role model you can be for her. We get, of course, we're parents, we get things wrong. But we also talk about what a role model the Queen was for us. And people go, whether you've met her or not, it doesn't really matter. It's what you take away that inspires you. What what inspired you about her as a leader that you will always remember? Yeah, I, I've been, I think, like the rest of the world, reflecting on it quite a bit um, in the in the past few days. And I was quite surprised by how saddened I was by it, actually, because being, you know, mostly American, you don't really think about um, the monarchy on a daily basis. But I was quite deeply saddened. And what I think I've been reflecting on the most is her commitment to what she believed in was so steadfast and so long lived. And obviously being a child of colonialism um, and having an immigrant heritage, um, there's a complicated history between people of South Asian heritage and the monarchy. But that being said, what I think what is very inspirational and has been inspirational to me is that she clearly had a 
profound sense of duty. And against all fashion and against all, you know, tides and winds, she remained steadfast to her vision of what her duty was. And she lived a life of service. And, you know, I think the um, the last days of her life couldn't have been more poignant in that regard, where she clearly held on to the end and did her duty and welcomed the new prime minister. I mean, that is, I think, something to really live up to is that steadfast commitment to something that we believe in. And um, I, I hope that I can live up to even a, a, a portion of that standard. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so beautifully said. And, and she had an influence on me, you and others listening. But everybody has their own life. I, I loved reading Colin Powell's book. And he called it, it worked for me in leadership and in life. It, it doesn't have to work for everybody. And so we're particularly interested in this podcast in, Simon, what works for you and what shaped you into the the leader you are today in Remitly Global? And perhaps you could explain a bit as well about what Remitly Global does and the difference it makes to the lives of immigrants. And so that why it relates to you and your family's background. Um, and who shaped you? Uh, both maybe grandfathers and grandmothers and parents and that kind of stuff. Would you just share perhaps for about 10 minutes a bit of your a bit of your story and what works for you? Yeah, delighted to. So um, Remitly Global is an absolute dream job for me. Um, I pinch myself daily um, because it is a, I think, very rare opportunity that some people get, I'm very lucky to have, to work on exactly what I think my purpose is in life. And so Remitly Global's vision is to provide the most trusted financial services on the planet um, to immigrants and their families. And um, we primarily provide uh, remittances, uh, an online platform to provide, and mobile platform to provide remittances um, to immigrants in developed countries, to their families um, in their countries of origin. Uh, but we're just getting started and there is a broad um, array of exciting opportunities that we're working on to continue expanding financial access and inclusion for immigrants and their families. And I think that that is so deeply resonant with what I think of my purpose uh, in life or what I think of as being my purpose in life. Um, and I would say that in terms of what's been my inspiration uh certainly my father and uh, my family more broadly, having come from, I think, very humble origins. Um, he was the second to youngest in a family of 10 in Zanzibar. Um, he was of Indian origin um, and uh, was born shortly before World War II. And his father passed away uh, of an unknown fever uh, in the 30s, in the late 30s. And his mother was left with 10 children in a country that was not her own. She was not educated as women then typically weren't. And he grew up under quite difficult circumstances. And somehow through just sheer determination and the audacity of his dreams, pulled himself through the educational system, wound up at um, Imperial in London, which for a boy from um, the slums was unthinkable. I, I don't know how he dared to dream so big, but
But to give you a sense, when he was a child, he and his sister would go and sit on the street to complete their homework because there wasn't enough money for kerosene for the lamps in the house. They would use the streetlights on the streets to be able to complete their homework, but they were so driven that they would sit together on the sidewalk and complete their homework because they knew that education was their opportunity. And certainly they encountered many helping hands along the way. They were given scholarships um, and opportunities. And I think there are a fair number of us today in America and in England and in Canada and in other countries and in India and Pakistan themselves who have had the fortune of having fathers, grandfathers, mothers, grandmothers like that, who have shown us what the audacity of dreams, the persistence and steadfast pursuit of them can accomplish when it's met with some opportunity and some help. And what I feel very privileged to be part of at Remitly is to be able to be the help. Mm. Mm. Well, really, really powerful. And talking about being the help, Remitly has really reached out and been very generous to people who are suffering from the awful floods that have been going on in Pakistan. Uh, do you want to just say a bit about what Remitly's done and, and why it's so important? Yes, um, I think... Just reflecting on that for a moment, it is heartbreaking to, to watch so many millions of people be dehoused, be left completely bereft. Um, and it's, you know, I think the last count was on the order of 33 million people. When we first began to see the coverage of the scope of the floods, we started to have a conversation internally around the magnitude, the fact that these were in many cases, the very families that Remitly was organized to try to help. And it became natural for us to consider how might we be able to show up for the customers who provide us with so much support um, in, you know, every day, how can we show that support back? And it was just a small thing that was a, a little bit um, of a scramble to arrange, uh, which is let's waive fees. Let's just step into our humanity in this moment and say, we can support you in this way and we know how to do this. I think one of the biggest challenges and mistakes um, that companies make is when they try to grow a new capability. Uh, and in the world of international relief, it is very complicated. And sometimes when we think we're helping, we're actually not helping. Um, and so we try to stick to our knitting as much as we can and help in the ways that we know that we can and partner uh, with others um, who know the local communities. And so we were able to reach out to our distribution partners and say, hey, you know, what are you doing in Pakistan to help Pakistanis? We would love to support and, um, that started a beautiful conversation with some of our partners locally as well. So those two things we've been very blessed to be able to be um, part of. And um, it's been truly humbling to see the response from the Pakistani diaspora as well as Pakistanis in Pakistan. Um, it has become quite viral and 
there have been many, many touching um, notes that have been sent to Matt and myself and other members, Matt uh, Oppenheimer, our CEO, and um, many other members of our management team, as well as posted on social media that really have driven home to me how unseen many people feel in the developing world when they go through horrible, horrible um, situations. And I think when it comes to the floods in particular, we are increasingly realizing that we're one world and what we do impacts Pakistan and what, what happens in Pakistan, whether we recognize it or not, impacts us. And so it has felt like the right thing for us to do, to do what we can to support at this time. Yeah, no, uh, lovely. Uh, and, and just the right thing. Many companies use fine words, but they don't believe in it um, or, or that it's, it's tokenism. But this isn't, this comes from the heart. And, and I think you mentioned Matt Oppenheimer, the CEO, you know, he has set up a, an organization with others and you're part of the executive team um, that that, ha that has almost a, a mission, almost like a charity. I think it's the only corporation I know um, and it's you know been successfully listed on the NASDAQ, having started 11 years ago with nothing, uh, become a unicorn. Um, but but it has a real cause and a real mission, which people um, love to work with. And I know Lee, my wife and I love working with you guys because, because of this sense of purpose and meaning that you bring to life and the legacy that you are leaving in people's lifetimes, not after they've died. Thinking about life and what's gone on, proudest moments and darkest moments in your life, Soma, and uh, what did each of those uh, teach you? Um, you know, I, I'll start by saying I'm 45 years old uh, and I'm hoping that I'm middle-aged uh, and not past middle-aged uh, because I feel I have so much work left to do um, that I would like to do. Um, and so I say that because uh, I want to say what I say next with a lot of humility and understanding that my proudest and darkest moments may yet be ahead. Um, but I think there have been more than just one proud moment, a series of proud moments and a series of dark moments. I think life is like, uh, you know, comes in waves. Uh, and so I'll, I'll, I'll mention a few, if that's all right. Um, I think... When it comes to proudest professional moments, I must say that Pakistan Relief was one of them. Um, because in as an attorney by background, I think what I look for is where I can help, where small practical acts can have enormous impact. And this small act of waiving fees for some period of time on each individual transaction it's a reasonably small impact. It's a big financial impact for us um, and a big financial commitment for us, but a, a small one on an individual transaction basis. But in the aggregate, it will enable many millions of dollars to enter Pakistan at a time when those funds are desperately needed to rebuild homes and lives. And so a small act of waiving $2, $3 here and there um, may be the difference um, between somebody being able to go to school, having school books, 
um, being able to replace clothes so that they can feel just proud to show up at a local gathering or um, at school or at their mosque um, on Friday. And so, uh, you know, you just told me a, a beautiful story about the woman and the starfish, which I think will stay with me for some time. And I think is is exactly right, is um, at the end of the day, when you work on a mission, yes, you want to change the world, but the world is comprised of indi individual people with individual dreams. And um, the, the greatest gift I think we can give each other is to see each other in the completeness of our humanity. Every single person counts. Every single person matters. And in my faith, there is um, a saying that roughly translates to, um, if you hurt one person, you hurt all of humanity. And if you help one person, you help all of humanity. And that is something that I find to be deeply meaningful and um, I reflect on uh, daily. Uh, and so that, that's been one of my proudest moments, um, is the Pakistan relief. I think another one is also quite recent, um, our IPO, which we completed about a year ago, uh, I think was a more glamorous moment, um, you know, ringing the bell, bell at NASDAQ and, you know, having lots of newspaper articles written about us and all of that, a very glamorous. Um, but what I am particularly proud of about it is we walked out of that IPO with several hundred million dollars that we've been very careful with. And what that has meant for us is that as the market conditions for financial technology companies have deteriorated and the economy globally has started to face headwinds, we are able to continue investing audaciously in the pursuit of our mission and our vision to improve financial access for our customers. And many of our peers and many other truly fine companies are not able to do that. Um, which brings me, you know, back to one of the points you just made um, about Remitly's mission and vision. And, and one thing I, I think is particularly um, right at Remitly, and that um, I reflect on quite a bit, is there's been a lot of reflection, I think, on corporate purpose, in the last five or six years, rightfully so, what is the purpose of a corporation? Why do we exist? What purpose do we serve? And I think in the 80s and the 90s, we had drifted towards this quote unquote Miltonian idea that corporations exist to serve shareholders. And that is certainly part of why corporations exist. Um, and I think we're all rightly very conscious of the fact that we want to do right by the people that believe in us and invest in us. But nobody gets up and starts a company because they want to pay a shareholder. Somebody gets up and starts a company because there's a problem that interests them. And they say, huh, I think I can solve that problem in a new and interesting way or better than someone else has solved it. And that is a beautiful thing. That is a beautiful thing. And it can sometimes get lost as companies grow because there are so many pressures coming at us from different directions. But at its heart, that's what customer centricity is, is to keep that focus on what is the problem we're trying to solve. And maybe we'll solve new problems as we grow. But more than a charity, I think of us as being truly focused on the problems that were at the genesis 
of our existence, right? And that is joy. Um, and I think it's something that really is the key to our success is we never lose sight of our problem. Um, now I've gone a bit far afield from your, your original question, which was it one was of my a, darkest it, it was a very important um, extrapolation of the ideas that you had and, and very profound. And I will listen again to this afterwards in the recording. I think it's, it's superb. So I have no regrets of that, uh, Simon. And then really, uh, from from a, a, a happiest time, both with uh, the um, mission-centered support to Pakistan and and the Pakistan diaspora, um, and also the getting Nasdaq listed, to to a darker moment and what you learn from it, because we all we all have mistakes, we all have setbacks and disappointments, but the the skill is learning from them. So what was yours and what did you learn that that would help us? Yeah, I think, you know, like my proudest moments, there have been many dark moments. And I think probably the, the most important thing for me to say first is I think the important thing in, that I found in my dark moments is to persevere. Um, and one of the most moving things I've ever heard in my life was... Um, when Justice Jackson was in her confirmation hearings for the Supreme Court in the United States. And um, she described a time when she was at Harvard and uh, as a black woman, um, which you know wasn't very common and um, was a very particular experience for her. And she was walking across the quad one day, just feeling a bit, you know, demoralized as happens to all students at some point. And there was another black woman who she did not know walking across the quad who just looked at her and I'm, I'm going by memory. So I may be mangling it a little bit, but she just said persevere and moved on. And I think that is the most relatable thing, regardless of your race or your gender or anything is in the darkest moments to just say, I shall persevere. And so, th so that's the first thing I think that I remember when the new darkest moments come is persevere um, and stick to your purpose. Um, and that helps me enormously. Um, in terms of the darkest moments in my life, I think surprisingly, the ones that I thought would be the darkest are not the darkest. The darkest moments, there have been times, you know, one that I thought would be more impactful to me at the time that it was happening was in 2007, sorry, 2009. In 2009, when the first economic crisis um, of my adult working life, you know, happened, the financial crisis. And um, I was about, you know, seven years into my career as an attorney in private practice. And every law firm in America was just you know, laying off enormous quantities of lawyers, entire practices like securitization dried up. And I had many friends who simply had no practice area. Their, their entire field had gone away when they were on the cusp of partnership. And it seemed surely that our careers were ruined. You know, we were all on the cusp of partnership and, and they those partnership opportunities were gone in most cases forever. And I thought that that would impact me more, but it actually, in that the career impact did not because 
things, life is evolution. Things change. It turned out that, you know, being a child of immigrants who have lived through endless change and upheaval, I was raised with some resiliency stores that would enable me to survive that turbulence. Actually, reasonably okay. Was I stressed by it? Yes. Did I have to, you know, figure out new career plans? Absolutely. Um, you know, was it quite uncertain? Yes. Um, and I ended up leaving private practice and going into a very fortunate position at Pepsi. Um, I was certainly one of the lucky ones. Um, but I think what has been more surprising to me is the times when I've let myself down. And those are really the darkest moments. And they have happened. I have lofty goals. I have lofty principles. And um, I think, uh, you know, on most personality tests, I uh, am at risk of being an ideologue because um, I am so uh, naturally invested in integrity. And so for me, when I fall short of being the kind of person that I think I should be, to me, that is very difficult. It has been very difficult. So there was one that sticks with me. Um, and it was early in my career. I'll, I'll share two examples. This one is, is the one that sticks with me the most is I, um, was representing uh, an asylum applicant in the United States. She was a woman from Sudan who had fled um, as part of a family that was um, in the uh, dissent, like they were they were dissenters to the, the um, government at that time. And they had undergone terrible um, persecution, um, were at risk of death and had fled to the United States. And they were applying, she was applying for asylum. And I was assigned to her about a year and a half into being an attorney. And I certainly did not know that much about asylum law and, or any kind of law yet having, you know, been practicing for only a year and a half, but I was what she had. And that's, that's the reality of people without means um, in the world is you rely on the kindness of others who sometimes are not terribly expert. Um, and I was representing her and those were some of my darkest nights because I did not know how to help her. And she was lying to me about things. And I didn't have the experience at that time to understand why people lie. I, I just, I'm, I just didn't understand why she was lying to me, but her story couldn't possibly have been true. Um, it contradicted itself in multiple places and was scattered. And in the U S system, if you lie in an asylum application, it essentially becomes the judge's prerogative to invalidate your entire application. Lying is a very big deal. And I just did not know how to help her. And I was very frustrated with her. And those were some of my darkest nights because I both knew that I wanted to help her and that she needed the help. And I was terribly angry with her for lying to me. I was very young. I was terribly angry with her. And I wasn't very sure that I knew how to help. And I felt I was in way over my head. It wasn't until many years later, talking to my own father about his history 
during the partition of the subcontinent and how he navigated that experience. Where I encountered, and this was interestingly something that many South Asian families have a long and dark and complicated history in and very rarely talk about is what happened in our families during partition. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I started having those conversations with my father. And it was several years after um, this asylum um, situation. And my father was telling me about it. And again, I encountered the very same thing. The story couldn't possibly be true the way he was telling it. Those things just couldn't all have happened at the same time. And I was reminded of this woman. And what I learned, I started digging and reading because I, I, I couldn't understand why my father would lie. Of course, my, my father, why would my father lie to me? And I, I did quite a bit of reading about people that survive trauma and um, horrible situations. And it, you know, it's probably obvious to you because I know you were in the military. This is what post-traumatic stress does to people. They're not lying. Their brain has broken up the memories and stored them away in different parts of their brain to help them cope, to help them survive. And I am so deeply ashamed to this day of how hard I was on this poor woman who was simply trying to survive. Wow, thank you. And you know I'm going to ask you, what did happen for your father in the partition of India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh? What was what was his story in a in a nutshell? So he was a young child, um, you know, in his or he was a child, um, and at the time of partition, he would have been between ten and fifteen. Um, you know, like many <clears throat> South Asians, we're not exactly sure when he was born. It was in the late thirties, and after his father passed, his mother took him and. Um, his younger siblings and went back to their village in India in Madhya Pradesh. And that part of India was deeply affected by communal conflict. And so he and his younger siblings then at the time of partition tried to go to Pakistan. Um, my family is Muslim. And so um, that was what Muslims did from that part of India at that time um, to try to be safe. And um, he saw many unspeakable things. Um, he saw people being thrown off of boats to their death. He saw people being hacked alive. He saw um, many things that he can't speak about. And he crossed the border by himself because he had no choice like many other um, young people at that time. Families were split apart to try to survive. And he still can't really speak of the details of it, but he did say, he, he, he has told us deeply meaningful small things about it, um, such as he always goes by AR Somalia, and many people from the subcontinent go by their initials. And I one time asked him, why do you go by that? Why don't you just say Abdul Rasul, which is his name, um, which is what all of his friends call him. And he said, well, you know, in India at that time, we all went by our initials because there was so much communal conflict and if you went somewhere, you didn't want people to know your religion right away. And your first name typically gives you away. You know, if you're from India or Pakistan, you know a Hindu name from a Muslim name, just like um, we just know. And um, you never want people to know 
what your religion is because it's quite dangerous. And so everybody goes by their initials. Endless things of that nature, you know, talking about stowing away in a boat um, and seeing people being thrown overboard um, and hoping that no one finds him, you know, small stories like that um, come out from time to time. And the thing is, you can't, it's, it's very frustrating because you want to know all and you want to ask a million questions, but that's not the way trauma works. Mm. You just have to listen and then try to stitch together the pieces of the quilt over time. Yeah. Oh, wow. Very powerful. And thank you for going there because I know it's not easy. Um, my mother died, as I say, um, on the 8th of September, 14 years ago. And she had brought the three of us up on her own, my father being killed when I was two and a half. And I've always wanted to know more about my father because, of course, I couldn't have the conversations with my father. Um, I'm sure there's a book called Conversations with My Father. And, and so I talked to my uncle Roger before he died. He was 98, I think he was. And so you get bits of snippets and my father's twin. And it's only later in life, now I'm 60, that I actually... I'm ready to know about it and how that shaped my young life, how it's shaped your life and people listening, how it shaped their life. I'm doing the Hoffman process, which looks at what happened to you when you were 13 and younger. I'm going to go and spend seven to nine days going through a whole process without phone or email, just really letting go of some of the stuff which shapes our behavior, what goes on. So your personal story and how it shaped your father and how in turn they pass it on to you, uh, it, it, it's almost, it, it's a legacy that's passed from generation to generation, particularly people who've gone through the partition or people who are Roman Catholic or Protestant in Northern Ireland, or if they've been through the Holocaust or whatever it is, they pass it on. And, and it becomes the life map that they inherit. But you don't have to accept the life map you're given. You shape it with the people you meet and the experiences you have, which allow you to update and hang on your wall, your map of the world and of the values you have and the limiting beliefs that you were given, which you might replace with empowering beliefs. So I, I find this concept of life map with your highs and your lows very important. So thank you for sharing that. And thinking about, you know, you've got Fatima, your daughter, who's um, growing up. But when she's 16, if you thought back to when you, Simon, were 16, what bit of advice would you, I know you give her constant advice and she asks you lots of questions <laughs> and she's learning, uh, but she probably gives you lots of advice that we learn so much from our children, don't we? I've got four and they're always teaching me things. Um, even now they're 27 to 30. But um, if you were to give her advice, of one thing that's really important to remember, one thing to let go of, what would your advice be? Well, I'm delighted to say probably my biggest learning, I think, um, is from, you know, her generation and younger generations. And so I don't think I have to teach it to her, which is a great joy. I think I've learned it from her, if anything, which is bring your whole self everywhere. I think I grew up in a generation where if you were a minority, we grew up with two selves. You know, the self we had in our own communities where we were uh, let's say for lack of a better word, ethnic, we could let the ethnic out. And the rest of the world where we, our goal was to assimilate to, uh, you know, to put it crudely, a white man's world, right? This, this was a white man's world. And if we were going to be successful in it, our goal was, this was the old way of thinking. We 
wanted to become as much like the dominant culture as possible in order to succeed in it and hide away and curate away the parts of ourselves that didn't match that. And I have learned since the world has improved in some ways. Um, and I have learned that that's a poor path. And when you pursue that path and you get to that table, winning feels like losing because you have curated yourself into some very impoverished version of yourself and you're not having fun and it's not rewarding. And you've just perpetuated the thing that you weren't so keen on in the first place. And what real success looks like is opening the door, being vulnerable, showing your full self and trying to expand the narrative and expand the world a little bit, um, the world of opportunity. And I think the children today do it so naturally. Um, at least Fatma does. And that is an enormous privilege. And I'm very aware of the privilege that she has to be able to do that. But, you know, she will bounce around everywhere talking about Eid and, you know, brought in um, to her class uh, last um, last Ramadan. She she was like, Mom, can we make little cakes for everybody and um, bring everybody a date? Um, because I want everyone to be able to have what I have. And share, and she wants to share with them. And I, you know, that would never have happened when I was her age. So that's a beautiful thing, right? That's a beautiful thing. Um, and I, I think I would tell my 16-year-old self or my seven-year-old self to be a little bit more bold and have a little bit more faith in people. Um, and the world was certainly different then, but people weren't different. I, I could, I could have and should have confided in my friends more and and brought more of my full self into my friendships at that time. Yeah. Yeah. It's really uh, what you and I were talking before about, about pursuing, not just following, but pursuing your true north and your purpose and what you're doing uh, and to be as authentically yourself as you can. And that involves vulnerability. And I find the stronger people can be the more vulnerable and the ones who put the masks on have lots to hide and are feeling quite weak. But I do want you, you shared a lovely story when we were talking before about listening to the song Unstoppable and what your daughter taught you. You've got to share that. That's such a lovely story. <laughs> it's incredible. It's a, yeah, I mean, you know, out of the mouths of babes, right? See, so um, there is a song called Unstoppable by Sia and uh, Fatma and I listen to music on the way to school most mornings. We're, we're both music lovers. And so this particular day we were um, listening to that song. She was listening to for the first time and she loved it. And she made me play it like seven times. And at the end, she said, well, there, there is a line in the song that um, it goes something like, I put my armor on to show how strong I am. I put my armor on to show you that I am unstoppable. So she'd been dwelling on this um, and, and she, uh, unbeknownst to me. And so she says, you know, mom, she says she puts her armor on to show how strong she is, but I think if she was really strong, she would not need armor. She would just go into battle and as herself and show and, and just be herself and be vulnerable and, and, and fight that way. And that I was like floored. I'm like driving the car, you know, in yeah. traffic, and I'm just thinking, my God, that is profound. You're seven, you know? <laughs> um, and 
I thought it, it was one of my proudest moments as a parent to think she is resilient, you know, and she, she knows how to take a blow and keep going. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's as a parent, that is your deepest wish for your children because you know, the blows will come. Yeah. Yeah. And you remind me of children's stories and what you learned from the mouths of babes. Uh, Harriet and Bryony, my two daughters, who are now 28, 29. Um, one of them, it could have been either of them. So I, I, won't, so I won't attribute it to one particular daughter. Both are massively emotionally intelligent. But at, at about the age of seven, I came back from work, working in London. I think I was, I can't remember, Price Waterhouse Cooper or something. And uh, one of my daughters said, Daddy, how are you? And I said, I'm fine. And she looked at me and she went, no, Daddy, really, how are you? I went, whoa, <laughs> I suppose I'm a bit upset. And she said, so, Daddy, why are you upset? <laughs> and it's getting me now. And I said, well, somebody did this and, and they lied to me. And she said, so what are you going to do about it, Daddy? <laughs> and, and she started to coach me at the age of seven and about how I felt and what I could do and the action I was going to take. And I just thought people are naturally emotionally very intelligent and care about other people and want them to help solve their own problems. So I I do think you're so right. We learn if we're prepared to listen, we can learn so much from everybody we meet, but especially the young teach us so much. And we think we know it all. And the older we get, the more, dug in we get i know sort of the older characters and friends of mine and maybe myself get so very i think it's called cyclosclerosis a hardening mm-hmm. of a hardening of the attitudes not a hardening of the artery a hardening of the attitudes um so let's just go around the inspiring leadership compass which you know well from the inspiring leadership work we've done mq which is moral question your, your integrity matters a lot to you not only in your faith but just in the way that you are i know it's when we did any psychometrics, you scored right up there at about 90th percentile compared to everybody else. You know, your value system is really, thank God you're in charge of the law uh, issues in remitly and uh, risk management. It's just the right kind of thing. But um, what, what are your sort of top three values that you live by and how did you get on back on track when you let them slip? Yeah, I think... Um... One of them, you know, comes back to the queen, which is serve a purpose Um, and serve it as faithfully as you can. And I don't know if that's moral or if that's something else, but for me, it's, it's a moral, um, which is add some value, you know, make your time count. Um, At the end of the day, nothing will compensate me for a day of my life that I'm never getting back. And so um, there's no amount of money that will make up for it. There's no amount of anything. Um, so make it count. Um, I think being honest without necessarily, and the second part has come, um, with age and maturity without being sort of verbal diarrhea. You don't have to say everything that's true if it's not helpful or kind. But I I would say that my natural level set as well as my belief is that we should not dissemble. Um, we should not 
say things that are not true. So I don't say everything that is true if it's not helpful or kind. But I try my very, very best not to say things that are not true just because they're convenient. Yeah. Um, and I think help those who deserve it yeah. um, is another big one for me. Um, and, and for me, those who deserve it are people who are just like the rest of us, but have different structural opportunities um, and make the world more fair. Probably if I had to pick one, if I had to pick one mission and purpose uh, in, in a word, it would be be fair. Make yeah. it make it as fair as you possibly can. Yeah. And, and that's beautiful. All of those resonate strongly, which takes me on to the next one around the compass, which was peaky, which was meaning and purpose, which you've almost covered now. This this thing about being fair, living your life on purpose, not off purpose. And 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 having that that there's a very close connection between true north and the moral compass, or from the south, the southern star, but whatever you're following, that this this set of authenticity, appropriate vulnerability, being kind but being honest is really important. And that links with dharma, vocation, calling. You know, you're exactly where you should be right now, Sami. You, you know, all the things, all the experiences that happened to your grandparents, your parents, your own life brought you to this place as the EVP of legal and risk in Remitly Global helping improve the lives of immigrants it just it, it's a lovely story and it, it's it's very it's integrated rather than disintegrated it gets disintegrated when bits of it aren't covered in the compass so the next one around the compass is health quotient now as i know you are so so dedicated to family and to the job what works for you in looking after your mental health and your physical health because you know we can all be, and particularly my American colleagues, don't don't believe in having holiday at all and just work all the, all every day of their lives. I don't tease them, but you know they don't need to have any holiday. They go, the Brits, you're so lazy, and the Italians, they're even worse. You're always having a break. But uh, joking apart, how do you look after your mental health and physical? If you gave a couple of top tips as a super busy mum, businesswoman, you know d- daughter, all the rest, how? You don't always get right, I know. But what's your learning about mental health and physical health? A couple of each. Yeah, I would say candidly, this is my Achilles heel. And I, I think like a lot of women and a lot of minorities, it it I only learned it when it got me. Um, and I'm not proud to admit that, but I only learned to take it seriously when it got me. And someone pulled me aside, uh, you know, maybe four or five years ago and said, you're not really showing up the way you usually do, you know, and I was, I was a little bit surprised at first. And then I was annoyed. And then I was reflective about the fact that I was annoyed. And I realized I'd been annoyed a lot. And it sort of opened this door of self-discovery for me into mental health and physical health. And the fact that I had been trading away um, both of those things in the relentless pursuit of the things you mentioned, right? Serving um, my purpose, serving my family, um, you know, and I was at that point a very young mother. And um, as, as you know, anybody with children uh, will know, you don't sleep a ton when you have very young children. And 
since that time, with a lot of um, humility for the fact that it's still my weakest area, I have started to just structure it very intentionally. So I make sure I take at least two one-week vacations per year, and I schedule days off to coincide with major holidays and um, days that my child is off school. Because I find that when my child is off school, if I cannot enjoy that day with her, I start to feel unhappy. And so I gave myself permission. You know, in my 40s, I gave myself the gift of saying, when is it not worth it to you, Saima, anymore? Well, if I don't get to spend the day with my daughter when she's off school, it's not worth it. And so I, I, I'm very intentional about when, as soon as I get my daughter's school calendar, I book those days in and they're not a ridiculously large number of days and they give me so much joy. Um, and so being intentional about those things, I'm intentional about when I unplug and, you know, and I communicate around that clearly with folks. Um, and it's served a dual purpose. One is it's enormously impactful for my mental health, but another thing that I've found as I've done it, and you know, I, I've sort of given myself permission as I enter a more mature phase of my career is that it's enormously impactful for others. Um, and I am a reasonably uncommon phenomenon of being a minority woman in a C-suite. Not, thankfully, not as uncommon as it used to be. Um, but I've realized that what I do and what I don't do um, sometimes is watched quite carefully and becomes a rate limiting step. Well, if I do it, it gives permission to other people to feel they can do it. And male or female, um, cisgendered or not, you know, binary, um, minority or not, in America in particular, we have a problem with work-life balance. We have a problem with acknowledging the toll of unpaid work and the importance of families, not just children, but extended families and the fact that they deserve time and that personal mental health deserves time and physical health deserves time. So I schedule it in. That's the, that's the reality. And then I talk about it. So other people schedule it in as well. Um, it's not perfect. There are all kinds of flaws with it, but that's that's what I do. I think that's so important. And everyone listening, reflect on what you're doing in your what they call work-life integration, which is not a complete cop-out, but how do you integrate your work and your life? And I'm thinking about my two children and my two stepkids. Now I'm a grandparent for two as well. How am I giving enough time to them? Because I don't know how much longer I've got left to live. And as you know, my brother David died last year, suddenly within 10 weeks of diagnosis of cancer, and he's gone. And, and he had lots of plans of things he was going to do with his daughter and with his grandson, and he can't anymore. So so I, I think just going, I'll do that when I blah, is not good enough. And I've just written a little note to, to self to make some more time with my daughters and uh, my stepkids and grandchildren. Um, emotional intelligence. Let's do a quick fire on on the others around the compass because we've covered so much already. This has been been beautiful. A top tip that you'd give about building rapport and emotional connection with people. What would be your tip? I'd say meet people where they're at. 
you know, I think, and I, I'll say, I've referred to being minority, I think, quite a bit in this uh, discussion, but this one in particular, I think it, you know, as minorities, we typically, if we're successful, we learn this one early um, because we learn, you know, we hear all kinds of things that don't reflect us or that aren't consistent with our experience. And we learn to meet people where they're at and try to bridge the distance. Yeah, good, good tip. CQ is cultural intelligence quotient. It's collective, it's sort of IQ, it's decision-making. But of course, at the heart of it is diversity, equality, and inclusion. And part of that is meeting people where they're at. But what would be your top tip about being inclusive and uh, and respecting difference? I think um, the, the biggest one is quite simple, which is listen. Seek out opportunities to learn and listen. And if if you find that you're talking more than you're listening, my dad, who is a fountain of wisdom, uh, always tells me, and, and I'm chatty by nature, so I needed to hear it. Um, as a child, my, my nickname, I spent my early years in England, so there's all kinds of English things that are said in my family. My nickname was Chatterbox. Um, and uh, I've been trying to live it down ever since. But my father would always say, you know, God has given you two ears and one mouth for a reason. You're supposed to listen twice as much as you speak. Um, and I, I think that that's, that's really ultimately what inclusion is about. Brilliant. No, I love it. We, we've talked about this before, haven't we? Less is more. <laughs> so RQ, resilience. Um, what would be your top tip on coping with adversity, setbacks, disappointments? What, what's your top tip? persevere mm, yes. and, and, and it's really that simple you just decide to keep going and there are so many situations that I've encountered many of which I can't talk about because of professional reasons but some of which are just personal that I thought were unsurvivable yeah. there have been a couple that I thought were physically that are personal in nature that I thought were just physically unsurvivable there, there have been some professional situations that I thought were unsurvivable, um, both for myself and for others. And in many cases, we survived and we thrived. Yeah, that's fantastic. Brand next, brand, reputation, image, impact. Uh, you and I haven't yet done 360. We need to at some stage. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and get it from, you know, 20 people or so up and, uh, you know, who work with you and just, so that we're always learning. But what tip would you give to people apart from getting 360 from an independent source uh, about enhancing your brand reputation image and impact not in a glossy social media um, influencer kind of way but in an authentic way to to learn from others on what you're doing well and what you could do better I think I don't dwell a lot on brand I, I, I focus more on purpose and I think my purpose hopefully is my brand. Um, and I personally, I think that that is the most meaningful form of pursuing your brand is, is find your purpose. And, and I would note that some people have a calling and you can't, you can't fabricate your calling. Some people have it and some people don't, but everybody can have a purpose. And at some point it's about picking a thing and committing. And, and that kind of comes back to the queen, I think. Um, she may have been born with a calling, but um, 
I think she also recommitted to it daily. Surely there must have been days when she was like, oh God, not another ribbon cutting, you know, but um, it never showed, did it? Yeah, yeah, fantastic. And the final one around the campus after Brand is legacy. Um, what would you like in a sentence, your legacy in the work you do and your legacy for your family? What would you like people to say at your funeral? Oh my goodness, that's quite emotional. Uh, I would I would be thrilled if my daughter said she was a great mom. Mm. Um, and I think um, my hope is that people will say, I fought for things to be fair and I made them more fair whenever I could. Mm. And I tried to spread and share whatever privileges I had with others. Mm. Lovely. It's a lovely legacy. Leaving things better than you found them. I think it's stewardship uh, is what what uh, the business, I think we're in as leaders in business. Executive teams, you've been forming and shaping uh, compliance teams, executive teams, um, and uh, particularly right now. And what's your, your learning about, a top tip you'd give people listening about creating a high-performing team? If, from a sort of an average collection of people to create a, a high-performing team, what have you learned? I've learned, um, I think... A, a couple of things. I think the first one is again going back to purpose. Uh, you know, people. Um, it, inspiring leadership and creating high-performing teams is about inspiring people, and helping to coach them to be their best. And so, help them come to a realization about what they want their purpose to be, hmm. and then engage with them in discussions that are hopefully both supportive and frank to help them see themselves and see what their blockers are and see what their opportunities are and help brainstorm with them how they can, you know, move through both of those things successfully to fully realize their own dreams and potential. Brilliant. Lovely. And then um, last two questions. Uh, favorite book, and then we'll do the top tip. Uh, what's your favorite book on leadership that you've read recently, and why should people read it? What did you find useful? It's a slightly, I, I reflected on this. I actually read it a long time ago, but it has influenced me so much that I wanted to share it. And it's actually not a book on leadership directly, but it for me, it has been. It's a book called Weapons of the Week. It's by James L. Scott. And it is actually a political science book on forms of peasant resistance. And it studies the ways in which, um, you know, what is called, you know, what he calls peasants, um, but is really, you know, subsistence workers in feudal economies band together when they have no power, how the powerless behave when they are being oppressed and it has endless applications because it, it talks about things like foot dragging and not completing your task on time. These are all the things that managers and corporations struggle with as well, right? And fundamentally, my belief is high-performing teams are teams that feel valued and heard. And the lessons of peasant resistance are applicable everywhere. Where I find underperformance, I, I think I see people who don't feel heard and valued. Fantastic. I am going to listen to that. I, I hope that there's an audio version, as you know, with my dyslexia. I'll probably listen to that. And then your two-minute top tip. 
maybe from your father or maybe from somewhere else, but share. And, and in this session, just introduce yourself, say who you are, uh, where you work, what your uh, organization does, and then what your two minute leadership tip is. And we'll finish there. All right, great. Um, so I'm Simon Somalia. I'm the executive vice president for legal and risk at Remitly Global. Remitly Global um, is a global financial services company, uh, a fintech focused on providing uh, financial inclusion to immigrants around the world and their families. Um, and uh, our primary product is remittances. Uh, and my top tip, I'm going to cheat and, and share two. One is from my father, act, never react. Uh, and um, those are words to live by. Show up as who you want to be in the world. Do not react to the forces that are coming at you. Try to stay the course and always swim towards your vision and your goals um, as faithfully as you can. Uh, and um, one that you shared with me a while ago, and I have reflected on quite a bit, which is when you feel you encounter a situation that's impossible, say to yourself, well, I know it's not possible, but if it was possible, how could I do it? Uh, and it is such a simple thing. Um, and it has unblocked many a uh, obstacle. So I, I love that top tip. Fantastic. Simon, thank you very much indeed for being on the Inspiring Leadership podcast. You've shown why you should be here and you're definitely an inspired leader. And I know many listening will take great uh, support and sucker from your advice and your experience and you'll touch the lives in the starfish story made a difference to that one thank you very much thanks so much jonathan so now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that i've interviewed what are you going to do next if you want to get some more free material go to my website jonathanperks.com or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.